So just to uh, give you a little look ahead, next Sunday we are delighted, um, Stuart mentioned this before, that um, Tim Pewitt will be with us. Tim is a member, he and Jenny went out from Grace Bible Church as missionaries to Spain. He had been an elder here before going to the mission field. We're always delighted when he opens the Word of God with us, and so I want to encourage you to be part of Mission Sunday activities next week when Tim preaches, and then um, the beginning of the year, we, as we've done last last year, we're going to do as well this year, just some topical messages, but also in keeping with a couple of themes that we um, started last year, and that is to take a Sunday and focus on racial reconciliation, ethnic relations. We're going to do that on the Sunday two weeks from now. Pastor Stewart will preach on that Sunday morning, and then the Sanctity of Life Sunday, we'll look at what Scripture says about that, and then several other topical sermons before we get back to the Gospel of John as we move closer toward the, the spring and the Easter season. But for this morning, one of those topical messages we're going to talk about is the will of God. G. Campbell Morgan wrote in 1901, there is no phrase more often in use in Christian thought and speech than that of the will of God. He probably still rings true a century later uh, that the topic of the will of God is one that is discussed often amongst Christians. Uh, virtually everyone has asked or been asked, what does God want me to do? What is his will? What, where should I go? What should I do, not do? Those sorts of questions. You don't need to even be a believer in Jesus Christ to have wondered about what I should do, what the future holds in store. In fact, throughout history, people have tried to find ways to get help from some sort of higher power for decisions about their future. Bruce Waltke, in an excellent book on this topic, writes that um, some ancient civilizations studied animal livers for signs of what to do, for understanding of what the future held. The liver was considered to be one of the largest organs, and so the thought was at that point in time, before they discovered that it was the brain, they figured the liver was the center of intelligence and decision-making, and so priests would sacrifice animals, and they would study the liver for signs supposedly put there by a god that would give them clues to reveal his will. We, as believers in a creator god, have an even greater sense of urgency about this because we believe in a God who is omnipotent, who is all-wise, to whom we owe our existence, and so we want to understand his will. We want to know his mind as he has revealed it to us. What is his plan? For believers in Jesus Christ, the pursuit of the will of God should be part of a delightful, lifelong journey of keeping in step with his spirit, of seeking to walk in obedience to him as he unfolds his will for our lives. Unfortunately, there are times when the pursuit of God's will can feel stressful, like we're on the edge of getting it wrong, making the bad choice, getting outside of God's will, or so we think. God's will is perfect. We know that. We see that in Scripture. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But that also has the tendency to leave us at times frozen in place, feeling like we have to know exactly what the right next step is and that any wrong step will cause us problems, that it will get us afraid of maybe missing in some way God's will. I think there's sometimes when we sort of look at following God's will as if it's one of those you know, corn mazes in the fall where it's, we're going down paths and we're hoping that we don't get stuck in a corner somewhere and trying to choose rightly and not having to backtrack and do it all over again. And so we're going to talk about that this morning as we are on the cusp of a new year, wondering what it will bring, 
new job, new opportunities, life changes, maybe the person you've been waiting to meet and marry, maybe a setback, we don't know, but Stuart and I were talking through different topics for the start of the year. It, it seemed like this was one that both for us as we talk through our own lives and as we talk through counseling situations seems to come up often. How do I know what God's will is? And so there's some biblical principles we're going to look at this morning. I want to just encourage you before we look at those in the notes, I've put the names, the titles of two books. This is not a uh, topic that can be covered in one sermon. There are whole books written about it. And so I don't pretend here that we're going to cover it all by any stretch. So I would encourage you, if you're looking for some additional reading on this, these two books um, by Bruce Waltke, one uh, which is, he did back in the early 2000s and redid just recently, and then, I don't know if he got a different vision of God's will. No, he just added some chapters and some, some, some new stuff to it, some new material. But um, Waltke's book is excellent. Kevin DeYoung's book is one that Stuart and I have given out often. Uh, it's just encouraging books and, and giving you some wisdom and guidance. So if you're looking for some additional reading after this is done, please um, avail yourselves of one of those. So five biblical principles. To, to guide us in seeking God's will. I wish I could give you some slick acronym to this, but one of you who works for a government agency will have to think about this and come up with some name for it. But for now, I'll just give them to you this way. Know, obey, cherish, seek, and trust. Know, obey, cherish, seek, and trust. This is by no means an exhaustive list. It is not an infallible list. I'm just going to probably touch the surface on a lot of this. One sermon will not be comprehensive, but let's start in on the first one. Number one, know. Know that God is sovereign. Know that when we talk about the will of God, the desire, the intention, the planning and purposing of God, that God is sovereign. He is a ruler. He establishes his ways and he does them. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Works not some, not most, but all things according to the counsel of his will. That is not an isolated statement in scripture when it speaks to God accomplishing what he purposes to do. He is sovereign. When we speak about a will, we, we generally are speaking about de desires, intentions, purposes, those sorts of things. My, my, my will can be my desire for something. Uh, I, I write a last will as a way of expressing my intention for what happens to my belongings when I pass. But you and I know that our will is limited and is thwarted by other people, other circumstances. You may have what you think is your will for this afternoon. It may be rest on the couch with a football game. And someone else that you love dearly may have an entirely different will for this afternoon. And those two wills may have to be changed in some way. And so our wills get thwarted by circumstances and people. They aren't always carried out, and that's probably a very good thing. God's will is perfect. It is sovereign in his ordination of all things, of how things will be. All things are according to his counsel. Psalm 135, speaking of the greatness of God, says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. 
He goes on in that same psalm and speaks of other events in history that are orchestrated by God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So even amongst those who like to deem themselves sovereign in some way, who have been delegated some sense of authority in government, even amongst them, God is still over them and sovereign. He is still directing according to his decree. God's will rules. And so Isaiah 45.9 and Isaiah 64.8 both speak in terms of God as the potter and you and I as the clay, as those who are being fashioned, as those who are being influenced and changed by God. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship created for good works that he has prepared for us. And so it's his work. Job 14.5, Psalm 139.16, among a number of verses that speak to God's decree of the number of our days on earth. God is the beginning and the end. He not only knows our beginning and end, but he has ordained that according to his good counsel, his decree. You can try to use human reasoning to reject God's sovereignty to argue against it, but you cannot ignore the fact that it is declared over and over again in Scripture that God is the one from the beginning and the end who is the sovereign over his creation. He says it in Isaiah 46, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You and I cannot say that. We can imagine that in our dreams, but we know that it does not become reality. God says that his counsel is executed. All is done according to his purpose. To reject God's sovereign rule means you must come up with some alternate explanation for the origin and order of the universe apart from a divine creator. And certainly plenty of people have tried, but all get backed up at some point with, well, where did that start? Where did that come from? Where was the beginning of it all? Someone ordained it. Someone ordered it. That is the creator God, but that's, that's another sermon for another day. The fact that God is sovereign and works all things after the counsel of his will then presents a challenge for you and I. Several maybe. One in particular is what do we do with all the stuff that is contrary to God's holiness and perfection? If we believe that all things are worked according to the counsel of God's will, What do we do with sin and evil and suffering and death? How do we deal with passages like in Acts chapter 4 where it's looking back now at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and says that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel says we're gathered together to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Difficult passage. We understand that God is at work in the crucifixion of his son. 2 Peter 3.9 says God desires that no one should perish and that all should come to repentance. And yet you and I know that not all come to repentance, not all turn to faith in Jesus Christ. How do we square these things with God's decree? The, the simple answer, and this is always the one that I think sometimes people who are unbelievers think is a cop-out, but it's the truth, is that there are aspects of God's nature and his character, 
and his will that we cannot fully comprehend and yet are stated explicitly again and again in Scripture, and we are called to believe because this is who God is, the infinite, all-wise creator, and we are the limited, finite creatures who are called to believe these truths. And so when it comes to the will of God, there is his sovereign decree by which he works all things after the counsel of his will, but there is also God's will that is expressed in his desires and precepts, which sadly we also see are violated often by people, by us. God is able to genuinely desire the salvation of all human beings while decreeing a state of affairs in which many, by their own volition, remain in their sin and choose to stay on the wide path to destruction. One commentator put it this way, we must certainly distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what he actually does will to happen, and both of these things can be spoken of as God's will. Now, that may be hard for us to wrap our heads around, but that is what allows us to see Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders clearly doing something that is a violation of God's moral law by sentencing a man to death who is innocent, and yet at the same time having Isaiah 53 saying it was the will of God to crush his son as the servant. We hold those two in tension, we just hold them. Because that's what scripture says, that God is sovereign and he does not will disobedience. He's not responsible for our sin and yet he is able to work through man's sin and use man's sin for the accomplishment of his purposes. It is within God's power to restrain sin and evil. There is nothing worse than when people look at situations that happen and, and try desperately to detach God from them as if somehow it happened behind his back or somehow he was helpless to do anything about it. There's nothing like that in Scripture. God is sovereignly ordaining all things after the counsel of his will, even to the place of allowing man to commit evil and use that in his plan. Joseph, at the end of Genesis, is the classic example of this. Joseph, who has been sold into slavery by his brothers with the intention that they would never see him again and that he would spend the rest of his life in horrible suffering, if not be put to death. And Joseph, when he finally sees his brothers in Genesis 50, says, you meant evil against me. I know, I know what was going on there, and I know you intended me harm, but what does he say next? God meant it for what? For good, right? So that lives would be preserved, he goes on to say, that many people should be kept alive. It was God's way of moving me to a place where I would eventually be put in a position of overseeing food supply that would provide for all of you in the course of a famine. You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. So the application of that for you and I, a couple things. One is knowing that God is sovereign and that he, in his providence superintends over history should give you and I a lasting sense of comfort and peace in life circumstances. It, it, it should not promote in us a feeling that, oh, well, he's just in control and I'm just, I'm just a puppet here. No, what it's designed to do is to cause us to worship him all the more and to rest in our circumstances so that when tragedy strikes or when we have disobeyed God and there are real consequences to that, when we are facing dilemmas that seem like they don't have solutions, we can know in those 
times that there is nothing unfolding that is a surprise to God. There is nothing in that that is causing God to have to find what plan B would be in this circumstance. It is all unfolding according to the counsel of his will. He is on the throne and in control as much at creation as much as he is when his son is being put to death on the cross as he is in our worst moments. That doesn't change. God is in control, and he is sovereign, working all things after the counsel of his will. None of this should lead us to a sense of fatalism, sort of the it-is-what-it-is approach, to use the more modern lingo, approach to God's will. You know, it's just, it is what it is, so I can't really do anything about it, and so I'll just go on and ignore it sort of thing. It doesn't matter. God's in control. It doesn't matter what I do. Now, that, that's not the response either because the, the second element that we're going to look at here is to obey the Bible's clear statements of God's will. Scripture is filled with statements that do tell us precisely what God intends for us, what he desires, what he wills for us. It's important, I think, to, to help make a distinction here as we are seeking God's will place that we sometimes get hung up on, that we sometimes pause on, is we're, we're trying to know what we've talked about, God's decree. What, what's tomorrow? What exactly is this going to look like? How is this all going to unfold? When God has called us to understand the, the simple, clear directives of Scripture that he has given us and then apply wisdom as we walk through the decisions and the choices. But as far as the clear, direct ones, we could, we could read a bunch that are unambiguous in Scripture. I've just given you the references in the notes this morning. Let me just refresh your memory on some of these. I think they'll all sound familiar. Exodus 20. This is God's will, right? You shall have no idols, no other gods before me. Plain statement of God that you are not to worship things other than me. You're not to put your hope and your life and stake everything in stuff or people or relationships or things other than me. They should not be above me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Gospel of Luke. Clear statement of Scripture. What should I do, Lord? Love him completely. Love him wholeheartedly. God, in Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so when that unbeliever comes to you for counsel as to what to do with the mess that their life is in, you can talk through them some of the things they might do about the way they talk and how they act in those situations, but you must also plead with them to turn to Jesus Christ, that they have to turn from their sin because that's God's will for them, is to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and turn from their sin. 1 Thessalonians 5, here's one of those just nice, easy ones, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. And so, whatever the difficult circumstance is that I am in, and I am saying, what is God's will in this? I already have an answer from Scripture that's telling me at least part of God's will is I should be rejoicing in this. May not feel like rejoicing in this. But in that moment, I can thank God that I am alive in this instance. He is with me. He has not abandoned me. He will continue to strengthen me. He promises to give me wisdom. I can rest in him, even in that circumstance. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Clear statement of the will of God stands in complete opposite, opposition to what we see in the world. God calls us to holiness to being different, especially when it comes to sex. We are to live differently and act differently. 
Similar statement, 1 Peter, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Joshua 1.8 speaks of meditating on God's word day and night. We should meditate on the law of God. We should be studying and thinking about his word. Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. In other words, the will of God is that I, I, I watch what I take in. I watch, I, I be careful about what I look at, what I read, and what I let my mind think about. I be careful at what I'm surfing on the internet. I think about those things because that's guarding my heart to protect it from the garbage that would come in because that's, God says, that's from it flows the springs of life. John 15, this is my commandment that you love, right? Love one another as I have loved you. Statement of the will of God. So when I am not really happy with that person, not really happy with my spouse at that moment, I still have a command that the will of God is love one another, even as I have loved you. Still seek to be sacrificial, seek to be concerned about the needs of that person. Ephesians 5, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the will of God is that I be in a continuous posture of asking God to lead me, submitting to his Spirit, understanding that if I submit my body over to drunkenness, that I am allowing control of my senses now to be given over to something else other than God, that I am allowing control of, of what I do and how I think to be given over to alcohol or to drugs or to whatever it is. He is saying, you you should be submitting yourself to the Spirit, asking the Spirit to lead you. Ephesians 4.29, what's God's will when I'm in conflict with someone? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And so when I'm in that moment and he or she has just said something that was really troubling and angering and bothersome, the will of God at that moment is probably not to say what I'm first tempted to say. It's probably to pause, be Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. There's James, right? It's to pause at that moment and not let that come out of my mouth that, that's going to be harmful to that person. Last one, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How am I to act toward this person that's difficult that you put in my life? The will of God, I don't have to sit and ponder. What, what's God's will for what my attitude should be? His will is that you be kind and tenderhearted, because Christ was towards you, because you, are, you have been obstinate and sinful and disobedient, and Christ has been tenderhearted and forgiving towards you. We could go on and on, but I, I, I think you get the idea. The, the point is, if we're going to say that we are seriously seeking God's will, and we are not meditating on, on Scripture and in prayer and, and obeying the things that we know are obvious, then we are fooling ourselves at that point. If we're, if we're seeking God's will, we must believe this, the clear things that he said. Obey, meditate, pray. If our attitudes and our words and our desires look more like the world than they do like God's will for us, then it's absurd to think that somehow God's just not giving me clear direction right now. Well, seek to obey him. Follow these things that he has said that, that you know are obvious. 1 John 5, 3 says, The commands of God are not burdensome. We are called to read and meditate on them and pray for God's help in obeying them. Proverbs has a simple word, you know it, for the person who defiantly, who says, I, I want to know God's will, but I really don't feel like listening to God for it. What does Proverbs call that person? 
Fool, right? Repeatedly. Proverbs 1.7 is one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So know that God is sovereign. Second, obey the, the, the statements in Scripture that speak clearly of what his will is for us. Third one, cherish the freedom that your loving Heavenly Father has given you to make choices. And coupled with that is nurture a heart that is filled with godly desires. Cherish the freedom he's given you to make choices. Nurture a heart that is filled with godly desires. Tozer wrote, except for those things that are specifically commanded or forbidden, it is God's will that we be set free to exercise our own intelligent choice. If God is not prohibiting it, or if God is not commanding it, and I know I should be doing it, avoiding this and doing this because it's explicitly clear, and this is one of those choices that either way could be pleasing to God, either way seems appropriate, then, then thank the Lord that your Heavenly Father has given you the opportunity now to choose which way would be best to glorify him. A couple of examples. One in 1 Corinthians 10.27. We're going to touch on this issue again later, but one of the issues that the early church faced in the first century was the, the, the matter of dietary stuff. You've got Jews who've come to faith in Christ who are used to the Mosaic law and the dietary restrictions that they faced. You've got Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ, and now all are being taught that there is freedom in Christ. He has fulfilled the law, and so you don't, you're not under those restrictions anymore. That's why at our men's fellowship we can enjoy... There we go. <laughs> that is our favorite food for elder meetings, by the way. That's a special little note. This debate goes on in the early church over, well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm allowed to eat that. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to be in company of people who are eating that. And so in 1 Corinthians 10.27, Paul writes, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That word for disposed in the Greek is the very same word that's used throughout the Greek New Testament to mean will. It's fellow. This is the will. So if it's your will to go, by all means go. And don't make a fuss over what that person is eating. Just go. You have freedom in Christ. And so make that choice, providing you've, you've considered the, the biblical principles and you're not, you're not violating something God has commanded in some way, then go. Paul in Acts 20, sailing, and he's given the itinerary. Luke gives us some of his itinerary in Acts 20, 15, and then says in Acts 20, 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. God's, to, to put this back in the terms we were talking earlier, God's decree has a plan in store for where Paul will be and when he will eventually be arrested and when he will be sent off. Paul doesn't have all that. He doesn't have a sign in the heavens that says, here is your itinerary, Paul. You must be here on this day and here on that. Paul, in, in wisdom given from God, believes that he should be in Jerusalem by Pentecost, and so he makes the decision, the judgment call, to say we're going to skip Ephesus. We're going to keep sailing because we'd like to be in Jerusalem. Scripture doesn't either judge or condemn or praise his decision. It was simply something that he did that was neither forbidden nor commanded. God ultimately was still sovereign over Paul's itinerary and would have him where he had him at the time that he wanted him to be there. But he has given Paul this freedom, and so should you and I. The key to this is, is going back to everything we talked about under point two, and that is Obey the things you know to do. And if you're meditating on God's word, you're seeking to be in submission to his spirit, 
you're in prayer for wisdom, then when a choice comes and you don't have a clear biblical yes, no, right, wrong, use the freedom your loving Heavenly Father has given you and choose and move forward. He's not a, he's not a fickle God who plays games with us as if it's some game show and he's waiting to see what we buzz in on and what we do and if we get the right answer or the wrong answer. He is a loving heavenly father who is compassionate toward us. And so he has made his will clear in his word and now urges us to delight in him and enjoy the desires that he puts in our hearts. That's the message of Psalm 37.4, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Meditate on who he is. Have passion for him. Love what he is doing in your lives and, and, and let him change those desires or bring them in line with his. So know, obey, cherish. Number four, seek. Seek godly wisdom as you make important decisions. A lot of the day-to-day -day things we, we deal with are, are that area we just talked about. There's freedom in a lot of these. Not a clear moral yes or no. Either choice can glorify God. There are also those points in life that demand significant decisions. We understand these are ones that we contemplate. These are ones that, that could alter paths as we walk forward. Do I take this job? Do I move to this place? Do I pursue marriage with this person? Should we have children right now? Do, we, do I pursue this business opportunity? All those sorts of things. In Proverbs 4, we are urged to be attentive to wisdom, to love wisdom, to desire wisdom. The writer of Proverbs, as Solomon is giving this as the father is speaking to his son throughout Proverbs, is making it abundantly clear this is God's wisdom. This is instruction on truth that God has given. And so he's imparting this wisdom, and he's pleading with his son saying, get wisdom. Proverbs 4, verse 8 describes it and says, prize wisdom highly, and it will exalt you. Prizing it highly is like you've just won a trophy for a competition, and you are raising that trophy up. You have, you have worked, and you have trained, and you have won, and you're holding that trophy, and it is just that moment of, of just great joy because you prize that. He's saying that's what the pursuit of wisdom should be like. We train, and we love, and we, we go after godly wisdom, trying to, to, to read through Proverbs and, and understand, see God's kindness in there and who God is and what he's calling us to and what, what priorities he's putting before us and loving that pursuit of wisdom. As believers, we seek wisdom several ways, primarily the study of God's word, right? That's where we're going to look for God to speak to us. Does God's word say anything applicable, anything helpful to this decision that I'm making? Certainly God's word speaks to work it speaks to my working as unto the Lord. So this job that I'm taking, is it going to be an environment in which I, I feel like I can glorify Christ in it? Can I serve Christ through this? Um, this decision concerning the person that I, I, I want to marry, does this person love the Lord? Do they wholeheartedly love him? Do they sacrificially love other people? There's principles that go into these, these, these sorts of things that are clear in Scripture. So seek wisdom from Scripture and the Spirit of God to help give clarity on those things. We also get wisdom by praying. James speaks of that when it's talking about, particularly in the midst of trials, but James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what? Ask, right? Ask God because he's a loving Heavenly Father. You know that moment if you parent and your children have gotten old enough, that, that moment of joy when they ask wisdom of you. Mom, Dad, what do I do in this situation? 
we're, and we are not infallible, right? We, we, are, we are just a mess. And, and yet, there's still that, that opportunity because we love our kids and we want to give them some help, some wisdom. Now, magnify that to a loving God who longs to give us wisdom, but he also longs that we cry out for it and ask it, that we humble ourselves, not sort of arrogantly press through and, and expect him to do that, but that we cry out and say, Lord, help me in this. I, I feel lost at this moment. Give me direction. Show me in your word. The other place we should look is to other believers. Are there mature Christians who, should be a, who could be a good source of wise counsel? not looking for them to answer it for me, to solve it all for me, but, but Christians who will ask me good questions, who will give some insights, Christians who will poke at me and love me enough to say hard things if need be, so that when it comes to this question of, should I, should I transfer to another city? There's nothing unbiblical about moving, but that's where that maybe that brother or sister in Christ says, so, so what's there in that other city? Let, let's talk first about a Christian community. Is there a church there? Have you, have you looked to see a little bit ahead? Is there a, a local church there where you're going to be able to find some believers that you can grow with? Um, are your opportunities to serve Jesus Christ same, enhanced? Any thoughts on, on, on how you might serve Christ in that community? What's going on in your heart as you think about this transfer? What, what is it you really desire? That should be a question that should come up time and time again as we, as we disciple one another and counsel one another. What do you, what do you want in this moment? Why? Why do you want to do that? What's your motive in this? What's your heart aching for? Is it, is it simply for, I, this is all about making more money? That, that, that's not necessarily if providing for your family is part of the biblical principle there, but, but is it just for esteem? Or is it, I've thought about this and prayed about it, and I see God working and just giving great contentment in my heart about this. What are some of those desires? All that to say, those are good questions that wise counselors can ask. And we're called to be humble, to put ourselves before those folks and say, here's what I'm thinking about. Ask me some questions. Tell me what you know about me and, and, and help me think it through. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. YouTube and Wikipedia are not a substitute here, all right? Speaking to millennials on down, Google is not wise counsel at this moment. It, it may give you some good instruction. It's helpful for me on how to change the brakes on the car, but when it comes to important life decisions, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about godly wise counsel, unless it directs you to maybe a good sermon or something somewhere, I don't know, but, but talking to wise counselors. Know that God is sovereign. Obey the clear statements of his will. Cherish the freedom he's given. Seek wisdom and finally trust God and go forward. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ says the familiar words in Matthew chapter 6 about the stuff that gets us anxious, right? Matthew 6, 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It's almost as if Jesus knew the kind of things that would keep us up at night, Right? Sort of things that we struggle about and we're tempted to be anxious about and worry about the right decision in these instances. And here is Jesus going on in this passage to say, listen, all of your fearful anxiety, all of this getting wrapped up in, in, in fear, it's not doing you any good. It's of no benefit to you whatsoever, that anxiety. In fact, he says, I've got something to put in its place, and that's Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
we are finite creatures. We can't see the future. We don't know what the next moment brings, much less the next week or 2019. That's exactly why James 4 gives that warning about making plans, acting as if we are sovereign. Today, I will do this. Tomorrow, I will go here. I will make this much profit. And James says, who are you to say this? You're just a created being. Your life is like a mist, he says there in James 4. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What we're called to is living on a daily, moment-by-moment basis in submission to our King. Saying, Lord Jesus, how do do I glorify you in my marriage? How do I bring glory to God's kingdom through my living today? How do I bring glory to God's kingdom through how I act at work today and do my job? How do I bring glory to God's kingdom through my schooling today as I sit in class or my parenting or or my marriage or through my time with friends? How how, How do I show wholehearted love for God and sacrificial love for others? Those are the the sorts of things when he says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's calling us to be thinking in those terms. How How am I using this to spread the glory of his kingdom? It's not going to come up at every single moment of the day, but it is it is to be the guiding theme for how we're walking through our decisions. How am I striving to see his kingdom advanced? If we're thinking about those things and seeking after his kingdom, then What he said there is all these things will be added to you. You get the passive part of that? It's not that then you'll be able to do all this stuff. It's saying, then trust me. I'll I'll provide for you. I know the things that make you anxious. Seek after me. Seek to glorify me and trust me to provide what you need and to walk with you. The, the, The two extremes I think that we deal with at this point are probably most common anyway are fear and foolishness. Fear that paralyzes, fear that reflects lack of trust in a sovereign God at that moment. Scripture warns about it here in Matthew. It warns about it repeatedly. You and I are so tempted to try to grab things back and and worry about them, thinking that somehow we are sovereigns in those, and we are not. That's why Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything, but, and put in its place, right, but... In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What's he saying again? You gain nothing through all that fearful, mistrusting anxiety. Trust me. Pray. Ask. Give praise. Give thanks that you're in this situation and you face this crazy dilemma. Give thanks that I put you there at this point because this is a chance for you to depend on me. That's what God's doing. This is a chance for you to grow in this and to see me glorify myself as you walk forward. Seek wisdom, trust God, don't be paralyzed. The the opposite extreme from the fear is the foolishness, and that's sort of rushing ahead and presuming on God's grace. It, It is that taking God's sovereignty to mean it doesn't matter, I can do whatever I want, God is sort of the giant safety net. And I can run forward foolishly even though I don't think it's necessarily the wisest thing, but it really looks fun, and I know that God will catch me because God's kind. If you've ever heard the phrase, if in doubt, don't, and you've wondered, where is that in the Bible? I think the closest place to it is in Romans chapter 14, and it is, again, in the context of this discussion about food. And and the idea is Christian liberty. You have the freedom now to eat this food, but what he says in Romans 14 is he gives this warning 
Romans 14, 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is, this is the Bible's prohibition against foolishly running ahead into something and presuming on God's grace. What he's saying there is you have liberty to eat this, but if you sit down at the table and your past and your conscience still aren't quite resolved to that liberty and you're thinking to yourself, okay, they told me I can eat this, but I still think that this might be sin, then don't eat it. Because what you're doing at that point is you're saying to God, I think I'm about to do something that I'm not sure yet, but I think it could be sinful, but I'm going to presume on your grace and go forward. No, he's saying act out of faith. Go back and, and work on your biblical convictions at that point and come to the conviction that what you are doing is in obedience to God and then act in faith. But if we're at a point where a decision a choice, an opportunity that we are following has us making, giving ourselves some questions. I don't know if this is the right thing in the sense that this, this could put me in, in partnership with somebody maybe who's not a believer, who's got some terrible ethics, and I could be having to face ethical dilemmas down this way. If I, if I get, start dating this person who doesn't seem to be a mature believer, and, and, but I, maybe I can bring him around somehow, but it, I think it'll work, but I, it could also drag me the other way. If you're having doubts like that, that's where Romans 14 says, either act in faith and believe that this is where God has, has placed me and I am walking forward in faith, or don't. Stop at that moment and go back and start backing up to the other steps. Seek wise counsel. Meditate on God's word. That's where you slow down just a little bit rather than foolishly running ahead. Let me end with a quote from Kevin DeYoung, and, and this is out of the book that I've mentioned to you earlier. I think he sums it up better than I ever could. He says, in one sense, we trust in the will of God as his sovereign plan for our future. In another sense, we obey the will of God as his good word for our lives. There's those two elements, God's overarching plan, what we know in front of us and need to do. In no sense should we be scrambling around trying to turn to, to right page in our personal choose-your-own-adventure novel. God's will for your life and my life is simpler, harder, and easier than that. Simpler because there are no secrets we must discover. Harder because denying ourselves, living for others, and obeying God is more difficult than taking a new job and moving to Fargo. And easier because, as Augustine said, God commands what he wills and grants what he commands. We have that sweet opportunity to trust God, to rest in him, to meditate on who he is in scripture, and to ask for wisdom and to trust that he is the giver of that wisdom and he will provide for us as we seek first his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are a good and kind heavenly father that as we, in our finite, limited ability to see ahead bodies, Lord, with minds that are affected still by the lingering effects of sin and the temptations that still surround us, we are, we are subject to get it wrong. By your grace, you have given us your word, as the psalmist wrote, as a light unto our path. That you have given us your truth and spoken to us in clear language to call us to love you wholeheartedly, to love our neighbors, to follow after Christ, to to submit often to the Holy Spirit, to ask him to control us. Thank you that your word has given us these things plainly so that as we begin a new day, a new week, a new year, 
not having any idea of exactly all that it holds, we can trust you. You have ordained your will, and for the benefit of your people, it is good. You are working all things together for good for them that love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, if there's anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that 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 would be the starting point, that this pursuit of your will would come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth that Jesus gave his life, the sinless, perfect son of God gave his life on a cross to die in the place of sinners and take the punishment and judgment that we deserve for our sin and that he rose and conquered death and sin and now offers to those who will trust in him eternal life and forgiveness. Lord, we know that that in your word is what you desire for each person here. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would work this day to open their eyes to see that truth and to embrace it. Father, for those who are trusting in Christ, thank you for the moment we have right now, the breath that we have, the opportunities we have. Help us to love others around us more sacrificially. Help us to walk in obedience, to be submitted to your spirit. Help us to, to walk as people who live out what we see so clearly in scripture as being your will for us, that we might seek your kingdom first and trust you to provide. Thank you for your kindness toward us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.